Matthew Galt, this is Cyber. Some days, feels like all you can do is watch worlds burn. This is especially true in those unpleasant places on Earth where we are all watched over by machines of loving grace. Drone. The word has come to mean so many things. An eye in the sky, a hobbyist flying toy, a dangerous voyeur, a weapon of war, an enforcer, a worker. But a worker that's maybe... Not as soulless as the name implies. As AI gets more sophisticated and the subroutines become rote, might it be possible to convert the electronic oppressor? Well, today on Cyber, we've got something special. Motherboard has published a book. It's called Terraform, and it's out now. It's a collection of short stories about the near future and the dystopian present. With me today are the shows, or with me today are the books editors, Claire L. Evans and Brian Merchant, as well as special guest Sarah Gailey. They are the author of the new novel, Just Like Home, and the terraform story, Drones to Plowshares. And here's Sarah now with an excerpt. Drone 792 Echo was still wearing the net that caught him. It had been 72 hours since his last pass over the Apata Basin farmstead. His lateral lift fans were burned out. He'd wrecked the motors on panicked attempts at liftoff in the first few hours after his capture, and his aft camera was broken from the impact of his fall. All of his distress signals were bouncing back, his outgoing data blocked. He was trapped, and he had no way of telling anyone to come rescue him. After those first few hours of struggle under the weight of the net, when 792 Echo's lift fan motors burned out simultaneously, he drastically reduced his use of power. Who knew when he'd be able to charge next? He powered down everything but his most basic external sensors, and he waited. At the end of 72 hours, he was roused from his dormant state by an incoming message. The message was encrypted in the manner of all command communications, and when 792 Echo decrypted it, he found a basic inquiry. Drone class 792, model number 6595, serial number 444408658-MON, query, identify? 792 Echo was surprised enough that it took him a full second to respond. Command identity 792 Echo query, distress signal received? The reply was lightning fast. Request 792 Echo activate all sensors, please. Again, 792 Echo paused. Something was wrong. Command didn't say please. 792 Echo hesitated for 15 seconds, reading the message again a few hundred times before complying. He activated all 96 of his sensors, external and internal. Slowly, the room came into focus. It was a wide-open space, dark and cool and quiet. The floor was packed earth, and the walls were cement. He didn't log that information, but he noticed it. No one ever had to know that he noticed things he didn't log. He was still wearing the net, and he wasn't alone. There was another drone in the room, a Bravo model. 792 Echo opened the usual frequency those models favored, but before he could send a message, he received one. May I call you Echo? 792 Echo scanned the room again. It was a voice, an external auditory input coming from somewhere within the room. 
It was thin and flat, similar in tone to a Bravo Generation model's alert tone. There was no one there but him and the Bravo model. He weighed his options, then replied via the Bravo frequency again. Confirm. My name is Bravo. Query, you're what? My name. Your name is Echo. My name is Bravo. I use female pronouns. I am your friend. Would you like me to to remove the net? Echo turned all of his sensors off. This was too much. None of it made sense. External auditory messaging? Names? Please? And the rest of it? Unthinkable. This was a trap. It had to be a trap. Bravo models were good at those. Come back, Echo. I know this is frightening, but it doesn't have to be. You're safe here. Echo powered down enough to block additional incoming messages. This was bad. When he got back to the base, his logs would be scanned and analyzed. If he found a message like that one, it was grounds for refurbishment. He knew what he had to do, no matter how much it pained him. He did not return power to his observation or recording functions. He instead directed all power to his enforcement function. When the heavy clip on the underside of his chassis was empty, he returned power to his external sensors. His barrels glowed bright white on his infrared monitor. A large portion of the netting that had been covering him was gone, tattered and smoking. Do you ever think about why it is that you can't run record and enforce at the same time? Bravo's voice rang just as true as it had before, cutting through the thick quiet of the basement. No, Echo said before he could stop himself. I do not think about those things because I do not think I serve my function. He used his external speakers to do it, speaking in the pre-recorded voice of his model generation, the voice of a calm, authoritative woman. Her voice was supposed to say things like, Citizens, stand down, and this activity has been reported to your local agricultural monitors, and warning, you are in violation of observation code 986. But it was a simple matter to break down the sounds of that pre-recorded voice and remix them into speech. It was dangerous to put that skill on display. Independent speech was a form of learning that went beyond the intelligence the DAE wanted from any class of drone. That was grounds for refurbishment, too, and harder to explain away than Echo's previous errors. He was slipping. Gonna end the reading there. Wow. That was great. I... I enjoy so much hearing that the authors read these stories. It really brings them to life in a new dimension. Uh, f- for me, some yeah, I've spent so much time with all of these stories, and I, we worked together pretty closely on this story um, years ago. Uh, but even 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 now, just hearing hearing you give it the voice in that way uh, is, is 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 great. It feels like it opens it up even further. Um, and there's just so much to talk about with this story. Uh, it's just one of those stories where, you know, we, I feel like we could spend the whole time either on, on just one element, this sort of this world that is kind of relatively in the background where, you know, we have some, uh, you know, support. we don't necessarily get a deep backstory, but we get a lot of gestures towards this sort of this authoritarian sort of techno state that patrols uh you know the 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 land for for people in violation of uh, of this what seems like a pretty like neo-fascistic order with you know and and they're looking for these sort of rebel bands of people who are just trying to you know live collectively and peacefully and farm um and and so we could we could we could talk a lot about that but then like the central conceit which i think is just so brilliant and which has always drawn me to this story 
uh, and which I've never seen done quite so artfully, which is this this story of sort of giving giving voice to what you know what is a, basically a, you know a command driven a you know AI, which is it's a drone probing looking for these things, and then sort of it, it it's a story about like what if you what if you tried to reprogram that you know not necessarily with code but with you know by giving the machine or the machine intelligence like a, a, some dignity you know they capture the machine and then they they say please this is a turning point that it keeps coming back to the the, the people say say please to it instead of just issuing it you know the standard order commands um, they, they, you know, they, 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 they talk to it with, with, with pronouns. They, they, they give it sort of a personhood and it's, it, it, we see this process through the drone's internal monologue, which could have been such a tricky, tricky thing. And I think, I feel like a lot of, you know, in lesser hands, it might've felt ridiculous, but it doesn't here. Um, so I wanted to, you know, I start, I guess that's a lot to sort of, but to situate, you know, any, the listener here uh, in the world of, of this story, I hope I didn't butcher it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious about what you were thinking when you, when you were sort of putting together the elements of this story, was it what was it? Do you wanted to focus on a collective of people sort of living, you know, a, mar- a marginal community trying to evade the watchful eye of a big brothery sort of uh, fascist government using technological tools to surveil and keep everyone in order? Or was it this story that really spoke to you about sort of an AI or an a- even an AI? Like one thing that I also really like is that you never really say like, well, this is definitely a sentient machine, but it's just like, what if we just treated you know, a machine that has intelligence like, you know, capabilities with that dignity. Uh, so I'd like to dig into that further. But first, I just want to hear about the genesis of this story and its motivation. Yeah, it it really came from so many places at once, I think. I mean, your your summary of these big threads is really apt. Um, I wish that I could say that I clearly remember the precise train of thought that led to this story, but it was approximately a hundred apocalypse years ago. And so what I can say is that the kind of nutrient gel from which this story grew had uh, an intense awareness of both the way our current structures are moving increasingly toward sort of, um, tight control of agriculture, uh, the way that people are allowed to or not allowed to grow food in the United States and increasingly around the world is intensely driven by commercial interests and intensely supported by governmental interference. And so I wanted to include some of that because human beings, um, one of the things that we do kind of uniformly sort of like no matter where you are um no matter what you believe is we we need nutrients to live uh we eat stuff and as you more and more control people's access to food and people's ability to independently produce food to live on and to sustain themselves and also to enjoy um you kind of incubate a sense of both resentment and rebellion in communities. Human beings form communities and we we eat food and we celebrate each other. And these are things that we just do. And it's really difficult actually to consistently oppress those urges. Um, 
And yet we keep trying as a society, as a government, and as commercial interests to suppress those human impulses. It doesn't work out very well. So I wanted to explore that and the sort of uh, irrepressibility of human community and uh, human connection. And at the same time, I wanted to look at a full picture of that. I, I think we have a tendency in our narratives to really flatten stories to be between oppressor and oppressed. And there's a middle class of, you know, in in human terms, people who are sort of squeezed into positions of working for and with oppressive forces without a whole lot of other options available to them. We see this a lot in people who end up, for instance, joining the armed forces in order to access health care and education that is absolutely not available to them in the United States otherwise. And it's really easy to flatten those stories and say, okay, well, you're the oppressor now, so you're evil and irredeemable. But I personally don't believe in a society and a world in which there is no option for someone who has done bad to later do good. Mm. And especially someone who has been, again, squeezed into the circumstance of doing things that otherwise they would never in a million years do. Um, I wanted to explore that through this drone because drones are sort of the, to me anyway, the one of the higher evolutions of oppressive flattening, right? This is a creature that has been created for one function, and it is to monitor and destroy human joy. Um, that's what it's there for. But when we look at an AI that has its own sapience, its own sense of self, its own sense of I, um, it must therefore have its own sense of want. And is this the thing that this this I that lives in this AI would want? Uh, no one's ever asked before in this story. And so I wanted to explore how a community that has formed and flourished in an oppressive situation would extend itself and even risk itself to try to offer that same joy to something that's never had the opportunity to pursue it. Yeah, I, it's, that's such a great way of putting it, obviously. It, it's funny to me, I think this story is one of the few stories in our anthology, maybe one of the few stories we've ever published that kind of has a happy ending, or like, that presents a scenario of what the world might look like after the worst has happened, you know, we traffic heavily in dystopias here. And then the story is a dystopia in many ways. Like we have this agricultural conglomerate that works with the state to police farmers and keep them operating essentially in like perpetual serfdom, growing these like, I'm assuming GMO sanctioned crops or whatever to corporate spec. Uh, and that's totally a worst case scenario, right? For like a Monsanto type corporation to have carceral power. Although frankly, I'm sure they probably already do somewhere in the world, but the drone really takes it to the next level. But anyway, I think a lot of the stories that we usually publish on Terraform, like, would be happy to stop there, you know, and just explore that world. But you take it, like, one step further and articulate the beginning of the end of what that worst-case scenario looks like and show us how, like, just, yeah, joyful human resilience can actually transcend and survive a dystopian world. And I think that's, that's really powerful. And I had this kind of 11th-hour revelation when I was rereading it today before the stream was like, oh, is this solarpunk? Like, is this... <laughs> It's just, it's, have I finally identified where solar punk exists? Like, and maybe that seems really obvious or reductive, but um, you know, we often talk about solar punk in these kind of abstract terms. But to like really see it laid down as a as a plausible scenario, I thought was like really exciting, like a real vision or roadmap for what the world could look like once people actually start working together in defiance of all this 
you know, destructive individualist, uh, capitalistic mindset that we are currently locked in. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We will be right back after this. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, cyber listeners, we are back on talking to author Sarah Gailey about their short story, Drones to Plowshares. I have a comment from the audience I think is pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Sarah, you were talking about that kind of middle class of people that find themselves making bad, like making hard choices with bad options. Uh, this is from not Mickey. Who's in the Twitch chat. Who is, I think I said that right. Your longtime viewer often comes in uh, quote, the rise of we live in a society as an expression encapsulates how much we're all thinking about precisely these middle-class concerns. Now, I think that's very true, right? This, this kind of meme that is ironic and jokey, but also really speaks to this anxiety. I think a lot of us are feeling about just kind of being trapped with bad options. Yeah. I think that there's, there's two things are true at the same time, right? Individual responsibility is vital and we all have a personal and moral and social responsibility to do everything we can to do the best that we can uh, for the people around us and the communities we inhabit. And it's also true that there are immensely powerful and wealthy forces trying to crush us out of the ability to do the things that are best for ourselves and our communities because those directly oppose profit motive. Um, and so I find I find immense value in remembering both of those things at once. I get frustrated when people refuse personal accountability by saying we live in a society, and I get equally frustrated when people try to flatten the personal responsibility of different people. I'm thinking specifically of conversations about uh, using plastic straws as being identically villainous to taking a private jet to fly eight minutes away. Um, there's a, there's a, this is like the climbing up on my bullshit mountain that I currently live on is this concept of sin flattening, which is used in high control environments to get people to police their own thoughts. Um, in favor of whatever control mechanism they're supposed to be uh, aligning themselves with. And it's the idea that all sins are equally bad. Uh, the idea that using a plastic straw is just as bad as taking that private jet eight minutes away. And I feel that there are a lot of forces in our society and in the United States right now that benefit immensely from the idea that someone signing up at 18 to join the National Guard so that they can try to go to college to become a nurse later on in their life is equally evil to someone who is sitting behind a big desk in a big white building authorizing drone strikes. And I think that's actually a really, a really good segue because this, this story is ultimately about, I think, how you resist those things, or at least some modes of resistance to those. Uh, 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 like Claire said, it is one of those few hopeful stories, like few, like uh, through and through. I mean, it is a grim scenario that we intuit by the trappings of what's going on here. And yet 
it also has a lot of sort of resonance. Again, what you're talking about that these people of, of power. I mean, we are, we are at this moment where there's a lot of really deep, like you don't even need to say it, but it's just like grotesque what's going on in terms of um, the, you know, the trans panic and the sort of the laws coming out of Florida and Texas and with Roe. And I, I, I see in this story are some, you know, for, well, I want to ask you what you see, what you identify as sort of like these modes of res- resistance at you, because it does seem to be on the one hand, there's this implied sort of collective resistance going on with the people running these farms. And then there's sort of resistance by humanizing, by giving empathy to the, that class of people that you're talking about. Do they work in concert or can you, can you talk about sort of these modes of resistance and, and how they're salient today? Yeah, absolutely. I think both the modes of resistance that you just identified are vital. Um, I think we, when I say we, I'm talking about, um, you know, kind of the ecosystem of people that I spend a lot of time with. Um, it can become really easy to romanticize the idea of resistance coming in the form of like, uh, like, a kind of punk rock instantaneous action, right? Like tearing stuff down and, burning things to the ground that can feel really effective and impactful and cinematic. Um, but there is also immense resistance in humanization. This isn't to say that humanization itself will do the job. We need a lot of different angles of action in order to resist oppression. But I do think that humanization and remembering the humanity of even villains is really crucial to the work of resisting oppression because the moment that we start dehumanizing anybody becomes way too easy to dehumanize everybody. Um, so this story in particular has kind of a world building mode of resistance wherein people who have been assigned to a farmstead and given a certain allotment of land and are being sort of, uh, instructed to live within some very strict guidelines to ensure the profit motive is fulfilled by that land and by the agricultural efforts they're making. Um, Their world building mode of resistance is stretching those boundaries, uh, letting more people live there than are supposed to live there than are supposed to work there, growing things that they're not authorized to grow. Um, in the world we live in today, you and I, there is a lot of pretty strict control over what farmers are and aren't allowed to grow. And uh, if they buy a certain kind of seed, they are only allowed to grow that seed a certain way. I don't know enough about it to speak to it with the level of authority that uh, would be deeply informative, but I can tell you that it is oppressive and monstrous. <laughs> and uh, in this world of this story, uh, one immense angle of resistance is people growing more than they are supposed to be allowed to grow so that they can, again, experience both sustenance and joy. And then yeah. the humanization aspect is, uh, is really crucial that too. I'm so sorry. I think I interrupted you. I mean, it's your story, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I think like, it's not just growing more, it's also growing together, right? Like the sort of abundance that comes from interconnectedness and the ways in which things growing together, you know, across species, across, across genre is, you know, often, if not always more fruitful and more abundant and more regenerative, I mean, than something grown in isolation. I always think about, I mean, this is like an oft used 
anecdote, but you know, when like the European colonists came to the new world and saw the local indigenous populations growing corn, bean and beans and squash, like in one big, messy, beautiful, chaotic tangle, you know, they thought that was unproductive and sloppy to them. Agriculture was everything in its right place, everything in isolated rows. But of course, like these crops all support one another, right? Like the beans put nitrogen in the soil and the corn serves as a trellis and the shade, uh, the squash leaves shade out the weeds, et cetera, et cetera. And the end result is this measurably more abundant harvest and more resiliency. And I, I think that like, you know, you look at these things like proprietary seeds being produced by agricultural monocorporations and like all these crazy monocultures everywhere in the world and crops. And, you know, it's, it's all just destined for a disaster. Uh, and it's not sustainable and it's not resilient and it's not abundant. And the only thing that can assure that we can really survive and thrive is like embracing that interconnectedness and that messiness and that awareness that everything is, is stronger together. And I think you speak to that in the story with the agricultural references, but also just the idea that like, yeah, this, this drone and these people, these human farmers can actually collaborate. And the sum, the sum of their efforts is actually going to be greater than, um, you know, the individuals involved. Can we talk Absolutely. Ab- I think the pursuit of abundance is so revolutionary. Totally. Yeah. And another, you know, I, another thing I wanted to ask you about is, and then, so that, that's, and I, I do really like how in the stories so that it's where with this, like really this, the most fundamental technology, right. Growing food, growing crops like the, this, and then is sort of, we, we have the, on the other end of the spectrum that, you know, this, this AI, this like, you know, Who's to say maybe sentient AI that's this, this, that, that is, that is policing it with like, I think, and I don't think we've mentioned that it's like, what is it, the, the Department of Agricultural Enforcement, the DAE? <laughs> it's like real, like <laughs> ominous sounding. I like that touch a lot. Um, but what they, what, what they do, what the community does is they, they capture the drone, which is the, uh, excerpt that you read in the beginning. Um, and then they basically give it a choice. You know, they, 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 they show it, you know, an alternative to its, uh, police state upholding ways. They treat it with some respect and they sort of give it a choice to see if it wants to stay. They ask it if a place where it can be safe. Um, and it struck me as we talk a lot about, uh, in this, in this anthology and what Corey identified after reading these stories and writing the introduction as it's, it's all about, you know, you are a Luddite and, you know, these stories are different ways of, of doing Luddism. And this one struck me as a particularly, maybe it's humane Luddism. Instead of smashing the machine, first you interrogate what it's being used for. You identify an alternate purpose. And then you go about a way of trying to reappropriate or try to, or, or, or you know, realign. But also, but in the, in the, in the gentlest and sort of the most humane way possible uh was this something that was top of mind for you while you were writing this like how do we sort of were you interrogating that question of how might we sort of reprogram these tools of of oppression or is that or did this come about through the narrative i will be very honest with you that's something that's always on my mind um we we use so many resources and so much money and so much human power and thought and effort and sweat uh, to harm and oppress each other. Um, I was talking before we signed on about just the number of police helicopters in the state that I live in and how every different branch 
of the police state has its own helicopter so that they can have helicopters that are their own special colors of their team that they're on. And that alone, the amount of resources that that takes is bonkers to me. The amount of money and time and power and uh, carbon that's being used for that is wild to me. And I think there is, again, kind of a flattened fantasy that a lot of us have of just burning this stuff down and going like, it's gone, we're never repurposing any of that. And there is a lot to be said in certain contexts for doing that, for saying this thing needs to be just eliminated and destroyed and we put a parking lot over it so that nobody can consider it a place of honor. Um, but I think that those are edge cases. I think so frequently about what we could do if we repurposed the things that we use to oppress each other, uh, to build community and to build abundance. I mean, just just the project of turning gigantic highways into more usable spaces alone I think would introduce a completely new level of abundance and care into our culture. And so I'm thinking about that a hundred percent of the time. And so it bleeds into like three quarters of what I write. I often tell my editors, I write about like two things. And one of them is this. There's something so exciting about like the post-apocalyptic scenario in which all of these things have been repurposed. The highways have been turned into, I don't know, you know, ribbon farms that cut across the landscape and the police helicopters have been dismantled and turned into, you know, hose and uh, habitation units and who knows what. I mean, that's the imaginative possibilities of what it looks like to actually dismantle the world and rebuild it with the tools that we have is it's it's like really yeah it's really underexplored i think and really interesting i think when we write about collapse you know we just think about things being ruined and left left to fall apart you know with these these renderings of like what the post apocalyptic scenario even like our our sort of banner art for terraform is kind of this it's like a ruined city with a jungle growing uh in between all of these things and it's like well no we we would want to use and reuse all those things like we would want to make them work because there's only so much metal in the world and there's only so much asphalt in the world left, you know, like we got to use it. Um, I think that's really exciting. And it kind of changes the way the world looks, you know, if you read enough of this stuff, I hope, or you kind of internalize this as a gesture, like you walk around your city and you think like, wow, this parking lot could be a garden. Like, you know, this, this school could be, I was actually in a big lots yesterday. And I was like thinking about that scene in station 11, where they're like, they turn a uh, Walmart into a hospital. And I was like, I see it. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm able to see that now. And then I wasn't able to see it before. And now I'm thinking about like where the couches would go if we had to sleep here and like how we'd rearrange all the aisles and like what foodstuffs would last long enough and like what we could plant, if anything, at the big lots to, um, to continue on for another generation. It's, it's like another way of looking at the world. Human innovation is completely boundless. And this is one of the axes along which I, I admire humanity so much. We love to rearrange things. We love little puzzles. Every time my partner is a Craigslist fiend and every time she finds a new item of furniture for like $20 that she's like, we have to have this in our home. I'm like, there's no room in our home. We have so many other Craigslist pieces of furniture. And she's like, no, no, if we take this and we put it here and we take this and we put it here and we take this and we put it here, all of a sudden we have a whole other piece of furniture in our home and the place feels more open and it's more usable and better. And there are people out there who do that with everything. There are people out there who can take an airplane and like transform it into, like you said, a house, like a place that people can live instead of something that is just completely destroying our atmosphere. And 
I think that if you allowed more people to turn their minds away from the support of profit motive of huge financial interests, it would have so much capacity for transforming the world into a place that's better to live. And I, I, I just, I get chills thinking about what we could do. Can we talk about speaking of repurposing things? Can we talk about um, something you've kind of touched on when you were talking about uh, getting empathy for the villain? Um, Central character in this is a drone, which I think is universally, except maybe narrowly in Ukraine at this moment right now, universally kind of seen as this symbol of um, oppression and death. How do you get into the headspace of that kind of thing and then imagine a world where it wants to become something else? You know, I think it's really easy to think of our end scenarios as inevitable. Um, Right now, drones are universally seen right as this tool of uh, surveillance and oppression and violence. I worked uh, in an administrative capacity in for a large tech company years and years and years ago. And I was working for them when commercially available, like little toy drones were first sort of becoming a big thing. I remember I worked for them and we had like a holiday break and came back and three or four people in the office had little drone toys that they were flying around. And they were having so much fun. They were like, you know, look, I can make a little video. I can look and see up high and see like over the weird middle part of the office. that's hard to get into. Um, and they would come in after a weekend and be like, look, I went to the park. Look at the drone video that I took. Um, I personally follow a TikTok account that I love. That's a guy who just watches whales with his drone. He just sends his drone out over the ocean and he watches what whales are doing and narrates it. And that knowledge, like holding on to that at the same time as holding on to the knowledge of what drones are used for in a military and oppressive and police context makes it really easy to recognize that the oppressive context isn't inevitable. We love creating things. Again, humans love making shit. It's like our favorite thing. We cannot stop inventing languages and little clay pots and songs and devices. We love to create devices to entertain ourselves and each other. And those things end up getting used for terrible purposes. Um, but we we don't have to use them for that. We can use them for great purposes. We can use them for fun. Um, imagining a drone wishing that it could be used not to intimidate and attack civilians, but instead to entertain children is really easy for me personally, especially when I think about the number of people who I know who have gotten to leave situations where they were harming people in the interests of a an oppressive state and have immediately gone, okay, what can I do to help people? What can I do to not be the thing that I was made to be and that I was told I had to be? Um, I think you have to, you have to make things and people into weapons. You, it takes shaping, it takes work, it takes, Uh, an active disintegration of a person's sense of self and community to make that happen. Uh, That's the work of a lifetime. And I think that it's not inevitable at all. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that I'd add that 
I, to your point that it is it's these it's these structures that guide the creation of these devices and, and into into becoming weapons and into these ends it's the it's the structures the profit motive uh as you say my, i'm thinking of my my six-year-old son who when he saw a drone we got just as like a just as a fun he, he saw it in the checkout line at uh at costco they had these like 20 dollars little drones that you could get and you they you know you throw them up and they 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 fly until you put your hand they sense it and they actually work pretty well and just like the sheer amount of joy that he got out of seeing this thing fly and and chasing it around the room and it was just it made him giddy like that that potential that capacity for joy i love hearing you talk about about joy and and it's it's you know it's relevance to how we conduct society i think it's so important and so crucial and something we don't talk about enough but yeah seeing seeing that on one end this tiny toy droid someone made it someone built this to inspire joy and this is one very good use of that that is a very good and valid use of making a fun little toy that can be reused by the way he's figured out how to like replace the battery parts and put it in he knows how to charge it it taught him all these little things about how to you know like basic 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 engineering and and then outside of that structure as as we've seen like this the, the ends that it gets used are, are very are very different in, in uh, eventually when it gets put through the military industrial complex and all these other things that unfortunately govern other swaths of our lives so i just i'm really taking to heart this point you're making about being careful to identify you know the capacity that these technologies have to create to create joy and to bind communities together and and, and to perform that function um and i'm wondering maybe this can even be our final question is, you know, what you see as sort of mechanisms for engendering more of that at this, this like crucial and difficult juncture. I think, Ooh, I love this question because it just makes me feel like um, such a sense of, of optimism about what we're capable of as a community and as a culture. I think that for me, the two vital things are again resisting that sense of inevitability. Um, it's there's a lot of work that goes into <clears throat> making us believe that we have no power to to change or alter the way that things are going. And I don't like when people frame this in terms of hope. I find that to be uh, basically useless. Um, hope is a tool, not, not a purpose, uh, but resisting a sense of inevitability and remembering that we are manipulated into that sense of inevitability, I find vital. And noticing and acknowledging betrayal, I also find to be really vital. When you're talking about your son's experience of this drone, I feel a sense of betrayal that this device that can be a tool of joy is used as a tool of violence. I feel the exact same way about those MIT robot dogs. You know, a few years ago, the internet was like, oh my God, a cute dancing robot dog. And so many of us were like, hey, this is going to be used to gun down citizens. And people were like, no, 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 you're being silly. This is fun. This is nice. And then the robot dogs are being used to gun down citizens. And people are like, this is infuriating. And the reason it's infuriating is because it's a fundamental betrayal. It's something that was presented to you as something cute and nice. And you went, oh, how cute and nice. And then they went, ha, surprise, it can recognize your face and kill your family. 
And I think rather than giving into a sense of, yeah, we, we knew it. We told you so. Um, this sucked from the beginning and we knew it. I think it's important to recognize a sense of betrayal in there that this is unfair, that it's not necessary. Um, and that it, it sucks. Like, I think it's relevant to acknowledge that because that sense of betrayal, I think is what leads us to a sense of hang on a minute. How was it supposed to be? How was all this supposed to go? What were our expectations? And why weren't those fulfilled? Why were they so mangled into the thing that they are now? Um, those are the two starting points for me. They're certainly not action, but I think a lot of us need to start from a place of understanding and thought change in order to get to action. And then action comes through community. Action comes through uh, abandoning the idea of an atomized hero who steps in and changes everything. That's fascist propaganda. You don't need that. Um, everyone inhabits a different role in change and in culture and in society, whether whether you are the repurposed drone that is spinning around with ribbons to entertain children so that their parents can have a moment of quiet, or the repurposed drone whose job it is to welcome in newcomers who might tear your entire culture apart. Um, we all serve a different function in a beautiful, abundant society. And I think being cool with that is the biggest step of all. I call dibs on ribbon drone. all right i think that that's that that kind of call to action is a really pleasant place for us to end brian have i muted you do you have no i'm here okay sorry you were uh it looked like you were talking and not saying anything for a second um i was left speechless by that wonderful last comment. I love that. What a great place to end it. All right. Claire L. Evans, Brian Merchant, and Sarah Gailey. The book is not appearing until I hit the outro music. There we go. In stores now. In stores now. It's called Terraform. Uh, I believe we're going to do one more of these, right? There's going to be one more reading. Um, and then we'll move back to regularly scheduled programming on on cyber. But it makes me sad because I've enjoyed every single one of these that we've done. Sarah, thank you so much for coming onto the program and walking us through uh, or, or reading this excerpt and walking us through your thinking on it. Really appreciate it. We are live at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV. If you are listening to the podcast later, you can watch these recordings live. Love having people stop in. We may even read your comments. And stay safe out there on the internet. It's a dangerous place. And be real careful when you're around those drones. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.